and welcome to another episode of the Dice Are Screaming Podcast. Oh. Indeed, that's a throaty one. <laughs> oh. Mournful. Yeah, mournful cry. The mournful cry of the podcast. Yeah. Our podcast is the bleeding Russian princess of gaming podcasts. <laughs> Stay away from sharp, sharp objects, okay? Uh, no? Uh, uh, we'll have to see Rasputin about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're back for yet another round of topics, and it's Freeform Friday, so we're going to cover our topic tonight, which if you've already looked at the header, you probably already know what it is and what you're in store for, so you were warned. <laughs> Nerdery is afoot, but it's also Spooktober, so we will be continuing with that theme until this month has come to a close. Yeah, and it's always a good celebration for gaming because a lot of gaming is about thrills, and scares, a little jump scares every now and then, even in normal D and D gaming. Oh, your absolutely! Bash, you know, the room looks empty, and suddenly the table gets up and attacks you. What the hell, table? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you've ever lost a player character to an angry treasure chest, uh, then you have known the pain of the mimic. Yeah, uh, or of course, you know, the floor and/or ceiling can. Suddenly fold up on you and attack. Lurker above and trapper. Yeah. yeah. And the trapper keeper. No, it does keep. Yeah. Uh, your bones. No. Um, those are just small examples of a game that continually throws uh, thrills, chills, surprises, and shocks your way. Yeah. And, you know, that's beside all the normal stuff like uh, Call of Cthulhu and Chill, which are... And even Stalking oh. the Night Fantastic, which are more traditional horror-based games. You know, we've, we've spoken of Call of Cthulhu. You know, we've, we've had an episode dedicated to that. Um, Jill really deserves a session sometime. Uh, Stalking the Night Fantastic, likewise. Yeah, against the supernatural uh, and all that. You know, there are, there are a few other games out there that are... Oh, well, let's see. I believe there's one called Don't Rest Your Head that is much newer. Uh now, mind you, this is a strongly storytelling-based game. Uh, and, of course, being an inveterate gamer of long standing, I have no fear of heavier story-based games uh, with less die rolling. But I, I do get a hankering for dice hitting the table. So, yeah. So I'm not opposed to it. But it, it, I played it. It is a fun and interesting and very different approach to the horror game. A lot more freeform. Uh, I think it's very tough for a DM to manage, unless they're very light on their feet, making snap judgment calls and rolling with it and expanding upon people's suggestions and hints. Uh, having a loosely formed plan and a loosely formed plot would help, but but that's an exception. That's That's a different role-playing game. And we owe all of those other ones we've mentioned... I think we owe them some time this month while it's Spooktober. Right on. Not yet. Yep, so we're going to... We have some call-ins, so we're going to turn it over to Jason of RPG. RPG Nerd Variety Cast. Thank you. Yes, and uh, he has some uh, feedback from us, or for us, from our last podcast where we talked about Hammer Horror Films and gaming. So take it away, Jason. Hey guys, Jason here, Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Monster movies. Now you're talking my language. Nice Monster Squad reference, there, by the way. Yep, Kolchak, Captain Kronos. I ran a Barbarian's Lemuria game based around Captain Kronos. 
I updated it. I used the honor intrigue rules mixed. But anyway, real quickly, one movie, and you might hit this later, that I think you you missed, that was, de- or a couple things were definitely influential in D&D, giant f- flora and fauna, right? Gi- at least giant animals. So look at them. What's that, 1954, the giant ants? Definitely that had some kind of influence when you look at all the giant animals and insects in D&D, right? And then, of course, dinosaurs. So King Kong and what was the Valley of something with the G, the one with the cowboys and the dinosaurs. We got a ton of dinosaurs in there. Land of the Lost, right? So I think those are definitely in there. And I know you couldn't cover everything comprehensively, but I think the like them and the, the giant creatures is, is important. So a couple other real quick notes. If you love Hammer Horror, and I'm sure you guys know this, first edition Chill was that game. Unfortunately, you can't buy that on PDF or anything because of licensing issues. The closest you can get to first edition Chill now is, I want to say it's Crypt World by Goblinoid Games. It's basically the same game, but it doesn't have the save organization in there. Um, so the other editions of Chill kind of deviate away from Hammer Horror. The other thing I wanted to mention was, you mentioned Night of the Living Dead, and of course that's super duper influential. Go back and look in the 50s, was it 57 or something? Um, Vincent Price in The Last Man on Earth, and it's amazing how much of Night of the Living Dead was lifted right out of The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price. All right, thank you, Jason. Wow, a lot of a lot of stuff that we missed, and uh, thank you for bringing that up about Chill. Yeah, Chill First Edition is one of my favorites. Uh, I tried to run it back in the day, but it kind of fell apart. We were much younger then. Uh, yeah. The attention span of gnats on LSD. So, you know, just really squirrely kids it did not go over as well as we'd hoped. Uh, yeah, but also uh, thank you for The Last Man on Earth and also Them. Yeah, that bears some mention. And the giant monster movies, we did talk about that a little bit where we wanted to talk about uh, some of the stuff, but it did kind of get into the idea of, you know, Godzilla films and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, we wanted, we had a longing to include the Godzilla and the giant monster films. King Kong. Uh, but... Oh, oh, the limitations of time. Yeah, the... uh, So they hurt so much. Yeah, but thanks for bringing that up because Them is one of those movies that, okay, it's kind of creepy because it may seem sedate that, oh, it's just ants. Well, geez, they were on a picnic, don't they? Yeah, and Last Man on Earth, you could not be more right than you already are. You literally couldn't because that has been hugely influential across multiple genres. It's homaged in so many films and television shows and, you know, various other art forms, uh, you know, both literary and otherwise. I mean, both in, in celluloid on film and on paper. You know, so many people have given clapback nods to that legendary classic. I, I cannot say enough how much everybody should see The Last Man on Earth. Uh, yeah, so... Thanks for bringing us up, and as always, uh, great job on your podcast. You should check it out and uh, make sure that uh, you give some likes and uh, applause if you have the Anchor app, that is. But, Throw this man some likes. That's right. So um, we're going to get into it here uh, after paying some bills and uh, get on with our topic. So stick around. All right, and we're back. So we got some topic for you. What is it? What is it? Oh, 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 oh. One, two, three topics. No, just one. Just one, but it's a great big one. Vampires. Specifically, vampire role-playing. 
uh, with Vampire the Masquerade, the legendary LARP of White Wolf Games. Well, LARP and now tabletop. Uh, well, it's true. There is there is the tabletop adaption for it. Uh, well, I mean, tabletop came out first. The LARP was kind of a... Extension thereof. Yes, but the Mind's Eye Theater, all that. These things just had an enormous impact uh, from their onset. Uh, the game was released and kind of became an instant classic. So uh, I know it's not everybody's cup of tea. I, I get that uh, you know, there are people who have favorite games, uh, and there is some animosity between the LARPer and the tabletop gamer from time to time. I'm not saying it's it's normative, but there are some people with some bad blood on either side. Yeah. Uh, it... I have straddled the center on this one because I really, you know, is there a game? I'm so totally in. Uh. Yeah, and, you know, we're going <laughs> to cover about uh, what it is and how the vampire, not only is a villain, became a player character. And how it transitioned from just kind of uh, the vampires that, oh, it's a vampire, oh shit, let's get out of here. And next to, oh, I want to get laid. Yeah, I just, <laughs> uh, a little less laying, a little more slaying. Um, no, uh, the vampire has a pretty colorful patchwork quilt to the history. Uh, it, the treatment of the subject is different from author to author. And we kind of got to start off with a big nod to Anne Rice right out of the gate. Yep. Because Interview with a Vampire and the resulting Listop novels uh, changed the entire paradigm of vampire fiction from vampire as absolute unquestionable villain of villains to comparatively, say, morally questionable uh, anti-hero. You know, right. admirable in their own weird way, but certainly not trustworthy or safe in any possible respect. And fascinating. But, yeah, this this made them a seductive, attractive uh, creature that, you know, could interact with the human world. As opposed to simply loom over it from a mountain castle, periodically picking off uh, fresh prey. Uh, it, it put a new spin on it, and that moment shifted all the gears and started to drift towards things like a vampire role-playing game. So Anne Rice, giant kudo. If, if it wasn't for that, this would not be yeah, some happening of the, now. Some of the adherents of the Vampire the Masquerade uh, role-playing game like to say that it was developed in a absence of Anne Rice's novels, but I think that's a bunch of malarkey as far as I'm concerned, because if you weren't aware of it, you certainly were afterwards, and during the process of creating the game, I mean, the novels had been out for, or the first two novels had yeah. been written before the game had came out, so it wasn't like they were <laughs> sleeper were, novels just lurking in the back of uh, uh These were not, uh, <laughs> uh, these were not the typical sci-fi fantasy fair that uh, didn't get a lot of press outside of their genre. Yeah, uh, so... Interview with a Vampire and you know, of course, Queen of the Damned and, and others, uh, were huge bestsellers. Uh, they had this monumental impact. So to proclaim that there's no inspiration whatsoever, we, we came up with this in a vacuum. No, no. I get for legal reasons, you don't want to suggest that there is any actionable position. But I don't really think that's a risk because 
they did a terrific job at White Wolf. Uh, the game was well-developed, had a rich background history. Uh, it did not lift or plagiarize material from the Blistot novels at all. Uh, other than other head than, of vampire. Other than vampires who can be seen as vaguely empathetic. Uh, they have interests, they have pursuits, they have goals, they have politics amongst their own kind, and they're not necessarily a threat when they don't need to be. You know, now, let's be clear subtlety. here about two things. Uh, first of all, the vampire is a sympathetic uh, character was not present in Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> Dracula was not a sympathetic character at all. Now, yeah. uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula did introduce him as a sympathetic, but still villainous and very dangerous oh, monster. Yeah, I mean, it, fascinatingly, not completely dispassionate. In fact, you know, passion, in many cases, was the hallmark of yes. his undoing. The the strength of his emotions, the, the intensity of his feelings, uh, guided him down the path into evil. So, you know, you feel empathy for these purely human emotions, but you also know that you're dealing with something toweringly amoral, you know, just completely uncaring about other people's well-being. It's very much all about, what do I want? I will have it at any cost. Right. You are cattle... And I am the shepherd. Uh, so less empathetic there in the portrayals of Dracula, even in the modern ones. And let's mention uh, Lepreau's uh, Camellia. Ooh. Wow. Arcane reference. Yeah, but, you know, a a, okay, so there's a, some sapphic uh, vampires that preys mainly on women, and th there's a lot of eroticism in there for the time. It's not lurid, but... There's a lot of implications of things. And if you read the novel, you also get that uh, there's also hints of Lady Bathory. Ah, yes, the legendary Countess Bathory. Huh. Countess Bathory. Not to uh, demean her, but... No, but you know, certainly a classic legend that has vampiric overtones. Yes, that his blood is the essence of all life. You know, that's the source. So... That's the kind of backdrop uh, that both, I think, Anne Rice and the original creators of Vampire the Masquerade were drawing from. So we'll just uh, settle that right here. Um, so moving in to the role-playing game, when it appeared, it was in a kind of soft cover book, black and white, but lavishly illustrated in uh, places, as well as a couple of the uh, literal uh, classic rows on that green marble. Oh, and then yes. on the back, it's withered. You know, the rose is vibrant and alive and then wrapped with an onk. And then on the back, you know, it's on the, uh, the rose is withered and blackened. Eyes up. Yeah, th these were wonderful productions. Oh. And they had a nice story of a vampirist that had a prince long ago in the Babylonian times and they were engaged in the revelry of being creatures of the night and hunters of men. And, you know, he was slain and taken from her, and then she goes through a transition into the modern world where she's completely engaged in exploring her vampiric side and then sees him in an art gallery one night and then, you know, decides to take him back. 
she will not be denied. And yeah, of course, if you see the Dracula overtones there, well, no, no, uh, dissimilarity there because that's a very good route to go for, even if they kind of gender swap there, but you know, yeah. brings them to a vampire, it ends tragically. And then, you know, that's the kind of, it's a little story told as you, as it's explaining the concepts of the game and the precepts. And once again, tragic excess of passion figures heavily. Right. So. And the vampire is nothing but a tragic character when done right. It can be just a monster. Yes. It can be just an opponent as you swing your sword in D and D. It can be Count Orlock and Nosferatu with, you know, just so distant from humanity that, you know, there's there's no way to really get along for any great length of time. Or not. You can also go the other way with it and interact with humans constantly. Uh, it's been done both in, in novel and in television and film. But Vampire uh, codified the role-playing game, codified vampires in clans. They were uh, attuned to bloodlines, each with its uh, own benefits and unique powers, and many of them sharing them, or common ones. The ability to transform into a bat was only uh, gained at the highest levels of some of the clans, but you had the Nosferatu, which were your (laughs) classics. They were horrid-looking, as well as the noble and lordly Ventru, who were... Vampire Mafia. Yep, they were uh, all about domination with the Toreador being the political opponents most and thorns in the sides and Arturs, as well as uh, the Bruja, who were the uh, <laughs> anarchists. Very nearly complete anarchy. Uh, I mean, just as, as close to anarchy as you can get while still retaining uh, some agreement amongst the clans about your conduct. And then the estranged... Uh, Gangrel, who are caught in a kind of half-existence between the lupine, or werewolves as they called them, and also the ways in which they regarded each other as child and sire, as well as um, the modern terms that were coming in. And you've seen this disconnect between vampires that had existed long before steam power or electricity, now in a world that they could barely understand. And had to bring in new vampires to help them understand and exploit this new world. Yeah, the, the implication in the game was that the sheer age of some of the vampires meant that uh, the sudden increase in the pace of technology had confounded them. That if you, you lived a thousand years uh, before there was such a thing as an engine, uh, before there was a locomotive... Uh, then a thousand years of familiarity uh, has been smashed by a world that in less than a hundred years is suddenly littered with highways, you know, and and machinery in every corner, uh, none of which resembles what they they knew for 95% of their life. Right, and also into this is a a political overarch between... Two schools of thought of vampirism, which was the Camarilla, which maintained a veil. They used all their influence and power to make sure that humans did not know that they existed. Using the powers that be in human society to cover up their excesses and also punish transgressors to their code. Yeah, that there are certain things you are not supposed to do, uh, mostly 
based on, will this expose the rest of our population to risk? Uh, and, you know, that being the guiding principle, that you do not expose the rest of our population to great risk. And then expose the Camarilla and other vampires to harm. Should humans become aware of them en masse, they will rise up as they did in the past and exterminate most of them. Now, and the other group, the Sabbat, are completely without brain or let. They believe that they are masters of all humanity and that humanity exists only for them to feed upon. Yeah, and their perspective that, you know, humankind are only cattle and, in fact, barely uh, worthy of that title. Only to take a few exceptional specimens to preserve. Yeah, that to perceive themselves as the absolute top tier of the universe. Uh, and nothing should be an impediment to them. Nothing should stand between them and their most immediate wants. Again, uh, passion gone horribly awry. Now, we can also pull another movie, and I was waiting for this one, which is Lost Boys, which also came out before the vampire role-playing game. True, albeit uh, very close. It, it very near that time. Yeah. Uh, again, in this movie, the circa 1987 or 88... Uh, the vampires were irredeemably evil, uh, without question. Yeah, there was no question that they were not the good guys. Yeah, but however, that... uh, they were charming in their their way. Yeah, <clears throat> sleep all day, party all night. <laughs> oh man, that is the archetypical existence of the Sabbat. And the uh, the implication in it was also that with age, power grows. Uh, the abilities mm -hmm. that people were able to unlock uh, took time and effort and study and dedication. And the longer you existed, the stronger you got. Yep, and that's pretty similar to D&D. You leveled up and stuff like that. But more importantly, um, player characters were supposed to come from the Camarilla, where there were rules about what you were supposed to do and how to behave, with the punishment being that they would just exterminate you if you did not adhere to them. Yeah, if you start looking like, uh, yeah, I'm thinking the Sabbat's a better deal because I get to do what I want. Yeah, all right, that sounds good on paper, but... What uh, was that other the, uh, one? The, the higher level and more powerful vampire that doesn't want that chaos in his city or that stain upon his reputation will fix that problem very quickly. Yeah, each city was ruled by a <laughs> prince that was obligated by a um, Justicars and... Uh, Archons to oversee the rules of the Camarilla, if forced by necessary. Yeah, that would suggest be... most of the time they'd show up and just give polite suggestions on how to run your city. Yeah, the the first talking to is of little consequence and is just a you know some some strongly worded advice. Uh, further visits, of course, go rapidly downhill. Yeah. So so the game did incorporate ways in which to kind of corral players who automatically, when granted these exceptional abilities right out of the gate, uh, might habitually offend. You know, they just might go a little hog wild. I'm playing a vampire! I'm biting everything in sight! Yeah. Uh, just a car and three we'll archons show up, and then there's, that's over. <laughs> so to speak, we'll nip that in the bud. The bud, yep. Yeah. But there was another movie, too. What was it? Um, oh, it had Bill... Uh, Paxton and um, oh, after dark, after dark. Thank you. Yeah, where they go into a bar, and it's it's a lot. It's not as extravagant as the Lost Boys, but it's still you know a civil a vampire from the Civil War. How old are you? 
Well, let's just say I fought for the South. <laughs> the lost. Oh, you know. So the characters that you created in Vampire were memorable, and they were supposed to be starkly tragic. A young Bill Paxton. I hate it when they ain't been shaved. Yep. <laughs> Didn't like biting rednecks. Nope. <laughs> but... In this backdrop of the character, the melange of the vampire, much like D&D, they had kind of an alignment system, but it wasn't uh, structured per se. It was humanity and your need to feed. Your blood pool, if your humanity was ever overranked or overdone by your need to feed, if you were wounded or pushed into a corner, the beast would come out and you would react to defend yourself and which would then lessen your humanity. And the less humane you came, the less you empathize with those around you, the more dangerous you were to be around. Yeah, because the two scores, humanity and blood pool, you know. Uh, <laughs> as long as you were well-fed. They, they, they do not exist in a vacuum. They're, they're perfectly interlinked. And if at any point... Uh, your well-being was so greatly threatened by a low blood pool. You know, you're you're running out of the ability to stay alive. Uh, you know, your humanity is irrelevant because you're about to lose it all. You go nuts. You kill. You do whatever it takes to survive. You lose some of that humanity. And after a while, your ability to exercise self-control begins to diminish. So you really got to play the careful line and stay out of those messes. Uh, and it was a constant, and you were constantly tested. The the storyteller, the game master, was instructed well in those now in those books to test the player character's resolve, to place situ- them in situations where they would have to exercise judgment and restraint rather than just full excess. Of course, the player character was free to make those decisions, but the consequences were there, and so that was a unique thing too. But also the idea of the vampire as a hero anti-hero or tragic character was really cemented in the gaming community and to the point that we see Dampier as a player character race in Pathfinder. Correct. Uh, that was a more recent arrival. I mean, in the last uh, decade or so. Yeah. Uh, and it speaks to the popularity of the vampire genre uh, that so many people wanted. Like, can I play something that's like a vampire? You know, like obviously right. it's, Full-strength vampire in D&D makes a terrible character class because the level of power granted the vampire in the early editions was so great that it just dwarfs any party you And their crippling weakness during day makes it hard to have a consistent game with a character that has to remain in absence during a certain time, only to be emerged ultra-powerfully at another time. Yeah, uh, and also, likewise, look at the subplots in some video games. Uh, For instance, the uh, Elder Scrolls. Mm -hmm. I I believe it was uh, Oblivion. And Skyrim both had vampire cults. Uh, And there's an entire subplot where you're afflicted with the vampire virus and you then have to seek the cure. Uh, You, having been bitten, you become a vampire yourself and then either you labor to cease being a vampire or you can it's within your rights to just accept it and run with it but yeah, it is and super inconvenient and it perfectly encapsulates what we mentioned about playing this in D&D a full strength vampire would be very hard to segue into anything 
but a city campaign with a lot of uh, nighttime material. Yeah. Now, uh, Vampire uh, watered down to Dampir, uh in Pathfinder means that they can interact with other players and participate in adventures fully. Yeah, they're only uh, lightly inconvenienced by daylight. And uh, their need to drink blood only comes out really as a nuisance when they're um, not well fed and only they become dangerous when they're really hurt. Yeah. They must be dead. And these are keeping true to the genre, more or less. Uh, But yeah, not as owed to Vampire the Masquerade because, honestly, I I don't think the popularity would have waxed quite so great were it not. Well, it's become become ingrained into the gaming culture that uh, vampires can be a player character and a healthy character exercise in exploring not only your psyche, but also having some fun playing a dark side character that isn't completely irredeemable isn't a monstrous villain that is bent like Strahd on just one single goal, and woe betide ye if you stand between that and his goal. Or, of course, the vampirus in Lost Caverns of Sukamp. Yes. Uh, who, uh, wow, what a ferocious opponent. For Drelzna. Me. Yeah, Drelzna is just a enormously dangerous single character. Uh faced by the player characters at the very end of the game. I mean, it's the last chamber, uh, and it is the most difficult fight. So as boss fights go, that's D&D using the vampire as the true villain. Uh, No negotiation, no capitulation, just you or me. That tries to charm or mesmerize the strongest player character in helping her, and then just starts dividing the party and attacking the weakest ones. Yeah. Spellcasters and clerics. Very little quibbling. Now, Vampire the Masquerade, on the other hand, uh, the entire adventure in any given scenario uh, takes place principally with vampires interacting modestly with the human world while largely being opposed by their own kind, uh, which diminishes the what you would think of as sensationalistic violence, uh, typical of the genre. Mm-hmm. You know, it diminishes that to a point where it's you know, yeah, understated. Much... Uh, also, the not necessarily having to kill your opponent or your food uh, <laughs> was another factor where, you know, with a little self-control, you take the blood you need and, you know, people are none the wiser and sources of blood are available to you without having to leave a trail of bodies. As they call them in the game, kine. Yes, your kine make it possible for you to feed without leaving a trail of inconvenient bodies every which way. You have some that even... Totally worthwhile. You even have a herd that you feed them uh, principally. It could be in a club. A few Cotray followers that you're a legendary figure that is now, or a popular figure in the area... Who has now achieved a little bit of fame, and so with yeah, that, that, that uh, clan Toreador artist slash rock star, he's not banging all those groupies, uh, <laughs> you know, but he's tapping a few veins uh, here and there to get just enough to be well. Yeah, and it also highlights the addiction. You know, as long as an addict is well uh, kept and supplied, they're fine. Yeah, and, uh, I don't have a blood problem. Unless it's running out. 
Yep. Then everybody has a blood problem. <laughs> so, yeah, there's also that, too. And, you know, the way that it characterized and uh, kind of broke it down in numbers that you could understand made it kind of approachable from a standpoint that, yes, you could have a long-standing campaign with intimacy and politics and social encounters. But, you know, they also provided numerous enemies, such as the Hunters, Yes. Groups of humans who have now realized that vampires truly exist, and <laughs> even despite the authorities' claims otherwise... Long before Sam and Dean Winchester arrived on the supernatural scene, uh, Vampire the Masquerade had periodic threats from human hunters who know perfectly well that there are things that go bump in the night, and they're here to put the smack and They down know on the them. authorities are out against them because they're usually controlled by the vampires themselves, and so work very stealthily and efficiently. Also, the lupine, or werewolves, and who are eternal foes of the vampires, which, of course, you know, shades of Twilight. Hello. Yeah, Twilight certainly uh, took its inspiration from some of the popular parts of the genre. Of course, uh, thank God, nothing in Vampire the Masquerade sparkles. No. Uh. <laughs> well, maybe that, uh, you know... Elder Gangrel does, but when he sparkles, you run. Turns into living sunlight. <laughs> and if a Toreador sparkles, don't worry, it's just the glitter. Yeah. It's body glitter. Booty dust. Yeah. <laughs> but, nonetheless, while Vampire the Masquerade presented vampires as approachable, even sexy, they also put forth and this, that they're very dangerous to be around for normal people for an extended period of time. Yeah, because sooner or later, you're either kind or an inconvenient potential uh, loophole. You're, you're like loose lips sink ships. So, you know, either you're with me or you're against me. Sooner or later. Not, not right at first. There's that little introductory mafia-like period where, you know, ah, we do a little thing for each other. You help me. I help you. But either you're all the way in eventually yep. or you're all the way out. And out is not good in this case. Yeah, you're in, they take you in and create a um, new vampire or a child, and, you know, the player character becomes the sire, which typically you have to approach the prince in the Camarilla and ask for permission. Yeah. Which, nominally, or ideally, the characters are low-generation vampires in the bloodlines who are just, have just turned into this world through whatever means that they come up with the backstory. And so it's if, up if you've just been a vampire for, like, a long weekend, uh, they're not going to give you permission to go around creating uh, or siring children of your own. Uh, you're going to have to toe the company line for a while before you get that privilege. And you're also, as the child understands the laws of the Camarilla and the limitations of their existence, the uh, sire is responsible for all their crimes, not the oh, child. yeah. <laughs> and there's an object lesson for you. Yep, so that's yeah. another limitation. Is like, hey, I'll create a whole bunch of vampires loyal to me. All right, good. So there's also another thing, is if you drink another vampire's blood, you become blood-bound to them. And if you do that too long, they become enslaved, and when it wears off, they usually resent you. So achieving loyalty through blood-binding all your child or children makes you rather... Uh, Eponymous for being a tyrant, and usually an Oedipus complex of now, a very severe nature kicks in. It's important to mention that, you know, to explain this concept, uh, being bloodbound means a loss of free will to some degree. Yeah, it's not a 100% enslavement. 
Exactly. It, it just, for the time being, it intensifies that bond and that degree of control from the master to the created. So this seems to players like a great ticket to, like, I totally control uh, the vampire I created. Not so much. Uh, long term, uh, short term, there are some benefits that could be right. gained. But long term, you'd better think very carefully before you undertake this. And that was one of the things that they put in there. To help people kind of facilitate, like, hey, this is a whole different society that exists in a substrata of human existence. And so it was a very unique and complex game that put forth a lot of ideas. And, of course, it went through various editions and went out of print and also destroyed itself with some meta plots and then had to be <laughs> rebooted several times. And it's now enjoying its fifth imprint. And, and good for them. They're you know, still around in this era. You know, they've, they've come through the ups and downs just like other popular role-playing games. Uh, but they've survived. And, you know, survived to prosper in this era of much more active gaming. So there's a lot that has the vampire has given horror role-playing. And as we mentioned in Spooktober at the start here, that it's part of the feel that, oh, of course, it's horror, but it's personal horror. Rather than, ah, there's a scary monster in front of me. Well, you are the scary monster. And it's you. But we'll be right back after this. We're going to take a quick break and return in just a moment. All right, and we're back. So, just a little quick uh, break there. But, uh, yeah, as we're talking about the vampire, the role-playing game, the world it created and the rules of vampires and becoming a vampire and being a vampire were well stratified, it translated to a new form, which LARPing had kind of been done before. Uh, yeah, society for creative anachronism had long since uh, brought about the art of treating a historical subject as an opportunity for actual acting, mm -hmm. uh, for live play, uh, for you know huge demonstrations, for enormous gatherings. Uh, and for staying in character all the while throughout. Uh, the popularity of Renaissance fairs uh, attests to this, with a great many events taking place during Renaissance events that involve people staying in costume and in character the whole time, so that the precepts of this were already firmly in place. But this brought it to a new genre, the vampire fic. Yep, and vampire LARPing was uh, predominant mostly through the uh, middle and late 90s. It still continues on. Of course, uh, some people took it into more of extreme fashion, which we're not really going to touch here, but I'm just going to say that if... I'm not touching that with somebody's borrowed 10-foot pole. Right. <laughs> that if you view yourself as a real-life vampire, you're probably doing it wrong. So... But, you know, to each their own. If you have, as long as you're having fun, I guess, that's the main thing. But, yeah, the LARPing element, the Mind's Eye Theater, was kind of a sub-imprint of the White Wolf Game Company. And they came out with uh, rules and uh, conditions how to play, you know, using uh, rock, paper, scissors to see who won. Yeah. You know, with favoritism given to people with higher stats. Because you also carried a little index card with your abilities on it. And if you had more points put into one ability than another, for instance, Auspex, the reading of minds and auras, and somebody was trying to obfuscate themselves, you could see them. And so you know, often you see people doing rock, paper, scissors, and, you know, best two out of three. 
if they were more powerful or just if you were equal, then it was just the best of one session, you know, one timing. Oh. Yeah, I mean, if you're tied for your score, like both of you have celerity one, uh, then, you know, rock, paper, scissors, and the result is final. Oh, that, well, something like that, passive versus a, a, a two opposing skills was easy to uh, adjudicate real quick and didn't require a game master, but there was usually storytellers lurking about that set up the parameters of the scene. And then, you know, you also had cross-pollination uh, of, you know, werewolf players. <laughs> which, you know, it was really hard to get the costumes for that one. Yeah. Unless you borrowed from the Howling. <laughs> Yeesh. Uh, well, at least you didn't borrow from an American werewolf in London. Uh, eh, not too bad. Yeah, great movie. Uh, well worth the watching of. But, uh, yeah, the whole LARPing experience really... Uh, got a lot of people into role-playing games that normally, you know, it generated interest in buying the books and understanding the lore and things like that. But it got a lot of people interested in more than just hanging out and cosplay. It gave you a way to now cosplay and game at the same time. So it was a unique melange of the two different styles. This predated the ascendancy of cosplay in the United States. So, uh, you know, actual costumed play... uh, you know, it had a place in gamer lore. I mean, you know, an excellent costume contest and things like that. Those were parts of uh, conventions long before now. Uh, so they've just, you know, they've gained greater uh, enthusiasm and a huge variety of people with favorite things that they want to cosplay. But uh, Vampire as a LARP, as a live-action role-play... Really was just like the early dominator of the scene. So you went to a big con, you were going to see a lot more of that than you saw of anything else mm-hmm. uh, amongst the participants, not so much amongst the the staff and you know con yeah. table floor. Uh, there were a few cons uh, back in the nineties that were all vampire larps. Yeah. Full-scale, nothing but vamps. Boy, that must have made for one weird hotel visit. Yeah, they, uh, I think the one that uh, was closest here was at, uh, near Chicago, and uh, they had some classy bar that they were all meeting at. It was just a, like a Victorian era. Just took it over for the night. Yeah. That is outstanding. Now, that's the way to pick your setting. Uh, I enjoyed a LARP that segued out of uh, the event space in Milwaukee, to a goth bar known as the Sanctuary, which was built in an old church. Wow. It was a fantastic setting. Oh, my goodness. Stone gargoyles and stuff like that all over the place. Oh, yeah. and Suitably creepy and gothy. I loved it. Yeah, you'd usually have some meta plot that you had to resolve or some small minor uh, side quest that had to be taken care of. With kind of like a scavenger hunt, you had to go recover something. I remember that part. The vampires were trying to recover something, and you had to keep in cover. You know, the werewolves couldn't go full werewolf mode, <laughs> but they could still hunt each other. <laughs> yeah, obligating the players to engage in some degree of discretion. So the cops weren't called. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't get too nuts. Uh, but no, good times were had by a lot of people. Uh, the advent of large-scale LARPing, uh, you know, it, it goes back to assassin. The yeah. role-playing game, you know, where uh, the it was a live-action role-play game. Yeah. With the, and we've referenced it in the past where, you know, a, a rubber band suddenly, you know, bang against the back of the head. Or uh, a, you know, 
little petroleum jelly smeared on a on a on a lock uh, that or a doorknob that you're about to open and you don't catch it and somebody's there in the background and goes gotcha yep uh those games existed before but vampire took it to a larger level yep and you know use the um kind of mechanics of the game with rock paper scissors aforementioned and all that but it was a lot of fun and it was unique and of course some people really gravitated towards it and other people who you know it did kind of divide a little bit of the community because some people who aren't the pretty people felt that they couldn't participate which was complete nonsense but there were some high-minded people like oh we only let the really pretty ones in here you know oh which is pretty shameful conduct you know, uh, for the time. Although, obviously, you had people who had a vision of what they thought it should be like while they played, and they used their initial position of authority uh, yeah. to, you know, shape who was playing uh, and who was allowed to play. And I, I kind of got to thread the needle on the, you know, honestly, a group of people who are playing a thing should have some Im- you know, important voice in who they're playing with. That's that's obviously a little piece of it. But this was done for incredibly shallow reasons. Yeah. It is not well regarded. Not everybody is the body type of a vampire. So we'll just say like that. A lot of us sat around the table, you know, dad bods and all that aside, you know, you were supposed to accept people as they were, as long as they were in costume was the only requirement. And yeah. sometimes the costume could be just a beat up leather jacket. Or it could be as extravagant as a full-blown gown and, or impressive tuxedo. Punk rock bruja. Yeah. Uh, you know, or uh, extra gothy Toreador. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, love you, Clan Toreador. Still my favorite. Sorry, totally gave it away there. <laughs> uh, but it was a good time. I have zero regrets and even less shame. Yeah, but again, it's the... Uh, it's the whole Spooktober uh, thing where you're playing a usual creature that is sub- subordinated to the outlier being a villain or an opponent, and now you're being able to explore the identity of being the monster itself and finding that there's a lot of good material to play and have fun, but overdone, it can get a little, uh, well, let's just say... <laughs> Not that we didn't encounter our awkward moments. Yeah, there, there's yeah, always some people You can who... go overdo it, and it turns into bad drama class. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it did in a number of occasions. You but... can take anything too far, and it's a good thing, though, that people yeah. were able to experience not only LARPing and cosplay, but getting out from behind the table and the screen a little bit was liberating, but... I still prefer playing behind the screen or on the table, so, you know, that's just my view on it, but I don't uh, diminish anyone who enjoyed having a lot of fun LARPing or that was their entry into full-scale gaming. But either yeah, way, there I, was... Look, if, if, whatever your point of entry to gaming was, if you had a great time and it caught your interest and, and kept your attention uh, long enough for you to, like, look around and go, man, this is this is something that I want to do again, then you won. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think that we've covered pretty well the influence of the vampire and the uh, uh, impact it's had on gaming. Oh, oh we've we barely scratched the surface of it. Oh, it's yeah? free for all Friday. I mean, we we could probably sit here and like just throw down references like magic cards, you know, one oh, after. Oh, well, sure. I trump your reference with this. Aha, but it is countered with my that and, you know, we could do that literally 
for his six-hour broadcast. Well, I think we pretty much covered but, the... But uh, we got the... We, big the gist broad, of it. Big, broad strokes. Huge, broad... It's like... Yeah. Giant Tom Sawyer painting a fence strokes. And that in our time is slowly coming to an end. Yes. So we, we for cannot your afford all the time. Uh, some other time, perhaps, we will uh, check back upon the vampire and other fascinating, inspirational works that have taken it in a new direction or surprised people or done something unique with it. Uh, and it's a worthy thing to mention for one of the favored monsters of all time. That's right. And, of course, mercy to your poor eardrums for having listened to us ramble on. Number but, uh, one we hope you enjoyed. Mistake. Yep. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed listening. And, uh, again, if we missed anything, uh, please let us know. We always enjoy uh, the comments. And uh, we also enjoy interacting with you folks. So just give us a uh, quick message on, or a long one, on the Anchor app or on our Facebook page. Um Either in our comments or directly, you can get a hold of us as well on Twitter, me at Death Hand Gaming, and myself at Magi Vox. But until next time, we shall depart. May the dice always roll in your favor. Ah, 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 ah. We're out. See ya. Mm-hmm.